Welcome to the River Tree Canal Fulton podcast. We are in our third week in the Gospel of Mark. So excited to have Christy Timmons preaching today on how the kingdom just turns everything upside down. Man, this has been such a great series, and uh, Christy's just been doing an incredible job in uh, just preparing and preaching from the Gospel of Mark. Hey, we have had uh, a pretty awesome month. We had an incredible turnout at our last uh, what for, which is what we call it. It's like a class we offer where we have lunch and we tell people a little bit more about the vision and mission of our church. We've got another one of those coming up in April. If you're interested in attending, you can find out about that at our website. This weekend, we are launching our April fridge sheet so you can find out everything that's going on from our potluck on April 3rd to Good Friday and Easter services to the what for and all of the other things that are happening in the life of our church. So again, any questions, head to our website, rivertreecanalfulton.com, and we hope that you are blessed and challenged by this sermon from the Gospel of Mark. Good morning. Uh, You can all be seated today for the reading of the scripture. We are in Mark, and it's verses 21 through 43. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, my little girl is dying. Come, lay your hands on her so that she can be well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now a woman, suffering from bleeding for 12 years, had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him, the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And he said to, oh, he went in and said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. 
They laughed at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and he said to her, Talita kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. At this they were utterly astounded. They, he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Lord, um, as we come into your presence this morning, um, gosh, the, the world is just in chaos. We are even more distracted in this moment than we normally are, Lord. And so we ask that you would just help us to focus on you. Help us focus on your word this morning. Help that deepen our trust and our relationship with you today. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. So good morning. Um, I am Christy Timmons. I am the kids' uh, ministry director here at River Tree Canal Fulton. Um, we just ended chapter, or our third week of um, reading the book of Mark together as a church family. And if you haven't joined us yet in reading through this gospel, it is not too late. You can actually join us at any time. Um, tomorrow we will be starting week four. Um, you can find that reading plan on one of these bookmarks that's in the back of the room where you can go to rivertreecanalfulton.com and it'll tell you what we're reading each day. Tomorrow we're starting week four and we'll be in chapter eight altogether. I highly encourage you to read along with us for that. Over the past two weeks, we've covered a couple of important lessons that come from the book of Mark. In week one, we learned that Jesus made a way into the kingdom of heaven for us through repentance, which is a gift, and it's not a dirty word, that repentance is actually something that we want for ourselves and for the people around us. And last week, we learned that the kingdom of heaven cannot be contained. It's like a, one of those tiny um, mustard seeds that grows into an enormous plant and then just continues to reproduce and take over everything around it. And we are like those little seeds planted to grow the kingdom of heaven. And this week, we are learning an important lesson from the author of Mark, and it is that what qualifies us for the kingdom of heaven is often what we assume wrongly disqualifies us. So this year, a group called the Legacy Project came into Northwest School District, and this is a mentoring program that helps kids grow to their fullest potential. Their goal is to give kids the opportunity to form positive and quality relationships with adults in their community on their turf. I have had the privilege of mentoring a group of middle school girls this year. And actually my friend Elise, I think she's here somewhere um, over here, she's actually been mentoring um, a different group of middle school girls. And we both agree that this experience has been awesome and rewarding not only for the girls that we're mentoring, but for us. I've learned so much by being in this position. 
And actually, there's a lot more kids that they would like to give this opportunity to, but they need more mentors. So if this sounds like something you'd like to know more about or hear about Elise and I, um, our experience, then please meet us in the back after um, our service today, and we'll tell you more about it. The thing is, um, at the same time as it being rewarding and exciting and a great experience, there actually has been a pretty hard part to this mentoring as well. And it's the fact that I have seen firsthand what disqualifying someone does to them as a person and to their life. I knew walking into this situation that these girls were part of this program for a reason, that they have had a hard life at their young age, that they need someone that they can trust someone who will encourage them and advocate for them and love them the way that Jesus does. Upon arriving the first day, I met three girls, and they looked um, dressed different than most middle schoolers I had spent time with. Um, One was dressed like a boy. One had thick black eyeliner on and fishnet hose and big black boots and the last one was hiding in her clothes. She was trying her best to be invisible. And I think that they were trying to say something about their story through the way that they were dressed, how they were feeling, what they had experienced, or even who they are as people. And so I listened to them as they told me how adults, um, teachers, strangers, friends, even their own parents and caregivers had made awful, awful assumptions about who they are. They had been accused of stealing, cheating, violence, doing drugs, none of which were true. They spend hours locked in their bedrooms every day trying to avoid their parents and their families because of how little they're valued by them how little they feel loved or even safe in their own homes. These adults have deemed these girls to be disqualified from everything good in this world, even just being who they are. And I wonder, um, as I prepared for today, um, thinking about these girls, I wondered if I had met them outside of this very specific situation how I may have made my own assumptions about who they are. I may have avoided them, or I may have thought they were bad news or troublemakers. I'm not sure I would have seen that they are troubled, that they needed me to come alongside them, and whether I would have approached them the way Jesus would. So how about you? Think about your own daily encounters when you come across someone who's different than you. Maybe they dress a different style than you do, or they listen to different music than you listen to, or maybe even at a volume that you don't appreciate. They live in a part of town that you don't live in. Or maybe they have a political sticker on their car that's for a guy that you're not for. Do you immediately make assumptions about who they are or what they believe, or what they value, based on what you see in that very quick moment. 
Do you immediately make assumptions about them, especially because you think that maybe their opinions are different than yours? When we walk into a room and we start looking around, identifying who's important in that space, I think most often we're not identifying the same people that Jesus would. I don't think that we're always for the people that he calls us to be for. What if we saw every person through the eyes of Jesus? What if we walked through life assuming that every person we met was created unique and perfectly for what Jesus had for them in their lives? Each of us is made specifically by God to be very unique. Our personalities are different on purpose. Some of us think that uh, people are the most important thing in our lives, and some think that details trump that. Details are the most important. Others think that dreaming about the future is what is most important, and still others put creativity at the top of their list of priorities. Because of that, because we are made different and we like and value different things, we often are caught with one of two comments running through our minds. And the first one is, why isn't everybody normal like me? And the second is, why am I not normal like everyone else? Because of this, it gets easy to get caught up in judging other people and even disqualifying them from a variety of things like friendship or joining with us in something or even disqualifying them from the kingdom of heaven. And we don't, unfortunately, just disqualify other people. We also disqualify ourselves as well. Many of us think less of ourselves than we should we think that we're not as good as our peers or we're not um, capable of doing something that God is calling us to do. And we believe lies about who we are and those, that belief in those lies, it just it keeps us from the opportunities that are right in front of us. It keeps us from joining God in whatever he's doing around us. We simply disqualify ourselves from the kingdom of heaven. But if we want to see the kingdom of heaven come here to Canal Fulton, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven come to your neighborhoods and to your people, then we absolutely need to look more like Jesus. And this way of disqualifying ourselves and other people is the exact opposite of what he would do. This culture that we live in is backwards compared to the kingdom of heaven. We're wrong side up, or Jesus is upside down. Either way, if we want the kingdom to come here, we need to see people more like Jesus does. And our scripture today gives us a great example on how to do that. It started by talking about how Jesus had arrived on a shore where a crowd of people had gathered when a leader of a local synagogue arrived and fell at his feet. Jairus begged Jesus to come with him and heal his very sick daughter. Now, this 
large crowd that was there, they all would have known Jairus. He was a leader of a local synagogue, so they would have um, known him. They would have looked up to him as a leader, and he would have been very well respected. Assumptions made about Jairus would have been positive. And in response to Jairus's plea, Mark 5.24 says, So Jesus went with him. Just like that. We would expect that Jesus, with all of these crowds of people around him, would have taken that opportunity to feed them. They were hungry for the good news he came to announce. So we would have imagined he would want to stay there. He could reach thousands of people that day with that good news. In fact, it was probably what he had planned for that day. But that's not what he does. Instead, he went with Jairus. This is opposite of what we would expect. And I'd have to say most definitely opposite of what most of us would do. I don't think we live lives that are interruptible like this. But suddenly a desperate unnamed woman enters the story and we're told that this woman had suffered for 12 years from constant bleeding. And although she had gone to doctors, her suffering grew instead of getting better. She spent everything she had in order to make her life better. And we can clearly see that this woman was desperate, not only because her health was deteriorating, but because her life has been insufferable. This woman would have been all alone. She uh, would have been living outside of the city. No one could have or would have touched her including her family. They would have avoided even being in her presence at the fear of being made unclean themselves. She was an outcast. Lonely would be an understatement for her. But beyond that, she was also a woman. Uh, Jairus would have been considered much more valued than she was. And it's hard for us to imagine a life like this. I think in these days, we've come so far. I can tell you I did work in corporate America for 12 years, and I often had to uh, work harder than my male counterparts for the same thing that they were given. I had to prove myself throughout my life at many times, and I know many of you have as well. I can tell you there have also been times in my life where a friend and I have had an argument, like a bad one, and that she would have avoided me for a time, and it's devastating. It's the most awful thing. But that uh, avoidance probably lasts maybe a week or two. We reconcile and get back together. Nothing like 12 years without your family or your friends near your side. Many assumptions were probably made about her as a person, much like the girls I talked about earlier, based on her appearance or her situation only. Her life was worse than anything that we could imagine. The scripture goes on to say in Mark 5, 27 to 29, having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body 
that she was healed of her affliction. This was a huge risk. If the crowd had known that she had been touching them, they would have been extremely angry. Although this is crazy bold on her part, this is the, one of the few things about this story that I think is right side up that seems normal to me. She was desperate. She just needed to touch his robe in order to be done with this awful situation that she was stuck in. So she boldly went toward him, risking death. That seems right to me. I can imagine this desperation and the boldness that she had that day to be healed and invited back into normal, to be included in society again. She shouldn't have been there, and she certainly shouldn't have been touching Jesus because touching him would mean that he would be made unclean as well. But that's the opposite of what happened. Instead, we see that Jesus cleanses the woman, that he healed her immediately. And the story could have ended there. It's a nice ending. But we're told that Jesus realized that healing power went out of him. He turned and asked, who touched my clothes? And then the disciples get a little sarcastic. They're like, look at this crowd pressing in all around you, and you're asking who touched you? But Jesus kept looking around to find who had done it. This is a crazy question he's asking because he knew exactly who touched him. But by asking this question, he's flipping this story upside down. Him asking this question does a couple of things. The first is that he draws attention to the fact that something important has happened. And second, he gave this unvalued, unnamed, disqualified woman the opportunity to tell her testimony. He used her story to make it known that there's a place in the kingdom for everyone. He says that the thing that disqualifies her from literally everything in the whole world is what he'll use to qualify her for the kingdom of heaven. Verse 33 says, The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She told her story. If she had disappeared back into the crowd, would anyone would have accepted her back into society? If she hadn't spoken up, would anyone believe that she had been healed? He wanted to ask this question of her because he wanted her to be known. He wanted to celebrate her faith he wanted to announce her healing to everyone, and he wants us to see that this woman who's disqualified, doesn't even have a name, was outside of society for 12 years. Even she is qualified for the kingdom of heaven. In verse 34, he says, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. So not only did he turn away from an important man, he turned toward an unnamed, disvalued 
woman. He lifted her up. He made her whole. He identified her as a daughter of the Most High. She wasn't only healed, she was saved. Her faith had made her clean. She had been living in shame, but that never disqualified her from being welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. I wonder how often we would ignore someone important by our standards in order to run toward anyone else, let alone someone who's been deemed unimportant by us or society. After this nameless woman is healed and saved, given the name Child of God, some messengers arrived from Jairus' house. They said his daughter had died and that there's no point in bothering the teacher any longer. I can imagine that Jairus must have been very angry. Angry at the fact that Jesus stopped on his way to heal his daughter in order to heal this unvalued woman. And those around him would have been thinking that everything that Jesus was doing is backwards. Raising this woman up, humbling this important man, everything is upside down, including what he's about to do. Jesus tells Jairus to not be afraid and to have faith. He's saying, keep on believing, keep on trusting, even though this seems impossible, have faith. So Jesus continues on to Jairus' house. He arrives, and he's hearing people wailing and weeping, and he tells them that the child has not died, that she's only sleeping. And the crowd laughed at him. The word laugh here in its original form means to ridicule or scorn. It means the laughter of one who feels superior. They think that Jesus has lost his mind. They laughed because nothing happening seems normal or expected. And so Jesus put this unnamed woman before this great man, and now he's here as if there's anything he can do for this child. While the people were still laughing at him, he threw them out. He took only the child's mother, father, and disciples with him to where the child was. He took her hand and said, little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 got up and walked around. And we have another unexpected outcome. Jairus was humbled, and because of his faith, Jesus healed his daughter. They were astonished and amazed at the miracle that had taken place because it was flipped upside down of what was expected. They saved, he saved the little girl. She now had a place in the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever met a person who sees people the way that Jesus sees people? Like one of those people that just loves sincerely, you feel like you're known by them the moment you meet them. My friend Sean was like that. Sean was a police officer, a sniper. He was part of the Canton SWAT team. He was an arms trainer. He was a huge guy, very intimidating. But it was his smile that told more about him than any of those titles. No matter where you found Sean, no matter the situation, how stressful it was, he always had a calm, 
peace-filled smile. And I heard a story about him recently. There's an owner of a local landscape company said that one uh, summer, last summer, Sean's lawn had gotten out of control. Like it was very tall, unkept, and so he visited them. Not to ask when they were going to get around to cutting his lawn, no. His uh, first question was, is everything okay? The owner explained that they were overwhelmed, that they had too many customers with the weather, the way it was, they were behind. So Sean got a list of places that they were behind on, went home and loaded up his own mower and trimmers and went to work on his day off. This isn't the only story. I, I, I have hundreds of stories about Sean. Um, my most favorite ones are about how people he arrested or pulled over actually became close family friends of his. I have stories of my own where he cared for me in hard moments. This is just how Sean was with everyone. Every single person that came across his path, even for a moment, felt like you're the only thing that mattered, 100%. He saw you, you felt known and understood, and you felt worthy. In December, Sean was called to a situation where he had placed someone under arrest, and instead of waiting for transport, he drove this man to the jail himself. And I think, knowing Sean, that was very much on purpose. I think the conversation that took place in that car ride made that gentleman feel known and understood and worthy. I think that conversation probably changed that man's life. Unfortunately, the next day, Sean went into the hospital. All of his organs were failing, and they didn't know why. And although they got that under control, Sean contracted COVID and just couldn't overcome it. He unfortunately died on Christmas Day. But his impact in this world remains. There are so many people out there loving others the way that Jesus does because of how Sean loved them. And I think Sean was an example of turning this world upside down the way that Jesus did, the way Jesus asks all of us to. He was an example of how to look at people through the eyes of Jesus and love them right where they are. Sean was unexpected in a good way. The kingdom of heaven is unexpected. Jesus teaches us that what matters is the state of our hearts. Look at who Jesus called to follow him. We have a hated tax collector. We have stubborn and loud fishermen, a man who spent years condemning Christians. These were broken guys who most certainly would have been considered disqualified from becoming Jesus's closest disciples. No one would have thought that these guys, that these guys would be the ones to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. The kingdom we are called to participate in, to usher in, is upside down. It's where the nameless are given a royal name, named children of God, when 
Jesus runs to the lowly to restore them and lift them up, and he humbles the proud where we should be interruptible, ready to join him, ready to tell others about who made them and who they are, that there's nothing that disqualifies them from the kingdom of heaven. We may at times easily disqualify others and ourselves, thinking we aren't worth saving, believing that we're messed up far too many times, that our sin is too big, but nothing discounts us from God's saving grace. And we shouldn't discount others from that grace either. There isn't anything we should expect from others. There's nothing we should expect them to be or to do in order to meet them right where they are. We don't have to earn his love. There's no competition for our salvation because Jesus suffered and died on the cross for us. Think about that for a moment. There's no way that Jesus could have been more disqualified by the world at that moment. He was naked, beaten, tortured, nailed to a tree. When he died for us, he had been labeled disqualified, all so that we could be qualified for the kingdom of heaven. We are all sons and daughters of royalty, royalty that was once hated and humiliated and deemed disqualified. I didn't have to spend much time with my mentees at the middle school before I saw how incredible each of them are. One is so wise and caring. She's so confident that she speaks truth into the others every single day. She tells them how worthy they are, how loved they are, and how the treatment they receive from this world is wrong. One is very intelligent beyond what she lets on. She's been told that she's anything but smart, so she plays the role that she's been told to. And the other is so beautiful and so creative. She has so much to give but because she's been taught that she's not worthy, she just hides. She tries to be invisible. These girls are living under the lies of this world. They have been labeled disqualified and unworthy. And because they hear this on a regular basis, they believe it. Things aren't as they should be. And they're not as they will be. Things are upside down from what God intended. And we have a role in turning it right side up. We have a part to play in restoring every person to him. People who we are called to. We have to begin to see them. And we have to begin to walk toward them. And walk them toward the kingdom of heaven. This season of Lent is a season of repentance. It's a time where we identify within ourselves some sin that we repent from, that we try to become more like Jesus. And in order to join Jesus in what he's doing in restoring the people all around us, we need to repent from disqualifying ourselves and others. 
We need to turn toward him and realign ourselves in what he's doing. We're going to go into a time of communion um, in a moment, but first, let's take a time to reflect, to listen, to ask God what our next steps are. I invite you to lower your head. Just rest in silence and listen for his voice for a moment. Have you disqualified someone or a type of someone in the past that you need to see through Jesus' eyes instead? Is there a way to place yourself in an environment this week where you have a conversation with someone you wouldn't normally spend time with? How could you take one step toward being interruptible to join him in what he's doing in the people and places around you? Is there a way to make known to someone this week that they are qualified for the kingdom of heaven? When we think about what Jesus did for us and the fact that he knew everything about us, all of our faults, all of our mistakes, all of our sin, and we realize that he still went to the cross, we get the full picture of what grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation look like. We get the full picture of what it looks like to be both broken and qualified. We should approach every person we're called to with that same backwards type love that is fully accepting. So Jesus prepared his disciples at dinner one last time before they went into the world with that kind of love. He took the bread and he broke it and explained that this represented his body that would be broken for all of us that he would die for our sins and we should remember this through this act of communion. Let's take and eat. And then he poured out the wine and explained that the wine represented his blood that would be spilled for each of us. That this would be the start of a new covenant, one that gave us all new life one that welcomes us all into the kingdom. Let us remember that now. Take and drink. Lord, um, it is a beautiful thing that we are all accepted. We're all named sons and daughters of the Most High King. Help us share that grace-filled acceptance with others this week 
Help us break down barriers between the us's and the them's and help us to repent from disqualifying others from the kingdom of heaven. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.